Hello there, Baha'i Blogcast listeners. It's me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is a special coronavirus COVID-19 update audio introduction. Several of the podcast interviews had been recorded in the previous weeks and months as we slowly drip them out into the blogosphere. And I certainly hope that you're all staying very safe and listening to the advice of our public health professionals during this global health crisis. Uh, If you haven't gotten a chance, please listen to uh, my interview with Dr. Robert Kim Farley, uh, which was the last episode, which is all about the, the virus and the pandemic. We've got some amazing upcoming episodes that don't reference the pandemic, and it seems kind of odd because a new chapter for humanity has definitely opened with the advent of this incredible international health crisis. This episode you're about to hear was recorded at a time when we were talking about things quite differently and looking at the world quite differently. And it was only a few short weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago. Nonetheless, we thought that this conversation and a couple other conversations I had in the previous months were too valuable to postpone or delay, and we really wanted to release So this next episode is really valuable. It's uh, young people getting involved in changing their neighborhoods at the grassroots, being involved in the institute process. This is an amazing family, four incredible sisters that live just down the road from me who pretty much run all of the Baha'i activities in the area. They're an incredible family, so devoted and Uh, This was a really fun and exciting and inspiring conversation. So, virus or no virus, quarantine or no quarantine, pandemic or no pandemic, I bring you this very special episode with the Esmalayazadeh sisters. I still don't know if I'm saying their name right. And my deepest apologies to the entire family and to the Persian race. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hey, Baha'i Blogcast, it's me, Rain Wilson. I am sitting in a room with five amazing people. This is a big group effort tonight. I'm so excited about this episode. <laughs> I've been wanting to do this for a long time. When, when was the first time I brought it up to one of you guys? Was it you, Nava? When did I? I think so, like a few months ago. I think it was longer than that. Maybe. I think it was like, well, nine months ago or a year ago or something like that. So, um, first of all, a big thank you to Gia Sky, who is our sound producer tonight. There was, you know, I couldn't just do this at my laptop with my kind of crappy microphone. We needed to get a real sound studio, so thank you very much. So this, guys, listeners, this family lives five miles down the road from me. The Esmolized the days. I can never <laughs> pronounce their name. We're going to get a lesson on how to pronounce their name. And um, these uh, four incredible daughters, uh, brilliant, kind, strong, resourceful, and determined so many incredible positive spiritual qualities uh, this family uh, contains and uh, demonstrates. And they live right down the street. And I've been working in one way, shape, or form with one or some or more of them 
for at least the last 10 years or something like that on various activities in our cluster and youth groups and blah, blah, blah. And we'll get into that. So rather than have a, you know, professional musician or actor or statesman or professor or or what have you uh, on the podcast, I've got four sisters, <laughs> like Chekhov's three sisters, only it's four, four Persian sisters from down the road who are at the cutting edge of the institute process there. Wherever there is a youth group, wherever there is a children's class, a, a study circle, a, a, a devotional gathering, um, a youth retreat or something like that, you'll find an Esmolazade <laughs> sister there uh, behind the scenes doing the work. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know uh, what we would do without this incredible family. So how's that for an introduction? Pretty good? Yeah, I hope feeling? to live up to it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, you never will. So let's, but let's start. There's, first of all, how do you say the name? What's your lesson on the name again? It's a smiley zade. So it's oh! like a smiley face zade. So a smiley, smiley zade. Yeah. A smiley zade. Yeah. You just think of smiley. Yeah. I'd heard you give that a couple of times, but I always like to say a smlazla <laughs> Um Is that racist? It's a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a hard name. That's, yeah. So, we'll as a days, uh, welcome to the studio, to GS Guys Studio. And um, why don't we go one at a time and just introduce yourself? Yeah. I guess just because I'm picking this way, let's go oldest to youngest and uh, Vadi start us off. Tell us, like, who you are, what you do in your life, a few things about you, what you're most passionate about in your service work. Great. So my name is Vadi. I um, am 26 years old, and right now I'm a student. I'm doing a master's program in public health and an MBA. Um, I don't think I'm super exciting or cool or anything like that, but I think there's a lot that I'm interested in as far as my service work goes, both within the faith and professionally, and I see those as being very interconnected. Um, in the service work, I really love to think about the capacity of youth and how they are being applied and how they're thinking about the big questions in their life. You know, from 15 to 25, you're really thinking about who you are, the life that you want to build for yourself, and the contribution you want to make to humanity. Um, and I, I find that process fascinating and something that I hope to be able to contribute to. Um, professionally, I'm, I'm really interested in healthcare, and I think it took me a long time to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. I knew that I had big questions that I was interested in. And you were thinking about med school for a while, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I, well, actually, from second grade until about my second year of college, I was planning on becoming a lawyer, and I wanted to go into international human rights law. And I think that really stemmed from a desire to seek justice and to think about about these big questions that are facing humanity right now and definitely was inspired by the plight of the Baha'is in Iran and thinking about how to contribute meaningfully to that conversation. But then as I got into my studies and to, started to think a little bit more about what I wanted to do, I realized that I also really loved science and I really liked these things. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, I like science. I like working with people. I think medicine is the route that I want to go. And I was planning on doing that up until about two years ago. And um, I worked in a doctor's office for many years. And I think I soon realized that maybe that wasn't what I wanted to do. Yeah, too much too much blood, like <laughs> phlegm and yeah, like bedpans and so stuff A lot like that. of things that you never thought you'd see and then you see it. But I also realized that there's broader questions that are facing the healthcare system. 
And I realized that one of the forms of injustice in our society right now is the way that people have access to health care. Um, and then I started to think really deeply about what I could do in that space. And I, f I felt like medicine and being a doctor was not the only way to contribute. Um, and I think that there were other skills that I thought I, I could maybe contribute that wouldn't be used fully within the med medical space. Um, and so that's what inspired me to apply to an MPH program, a master's in public health. And I also and realized- you're at Johns Hopkins right now? And yeah, I'm at Johns Hopkins. And when I started and I, I got into the program, I realized that they also offered an MBA. And I also was really interested in the way that material resources are used because I think they're important, but when done without like a good moral foundation, it can, as we see very clearly around us today, can go awry. So I, I thought about combining these two interests. And so um, in my graduate studies, I've been thinking a lot about access, affordability, um, and how we can make sure that really like people in the US and all over the world have have access to the things that science has allowed um, humanity to benefit from, whether it be pharmaceutical drugs or medical devices or whatever else it may be. I think um, that's something that I'm very interested in. So Great, great. So who's, who's next? It's Nava? Yes. All right. So. Um, hi, I'm Nava. I'm 24 years old. And I guess the question was what I'm interested in terms of service. I think I And who, who are you? You, you? you went to USC, you studied fashion, right? So I studied business administration at USC. Um, well, with an eye to going into fashion. Yes. Come on, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely always wanted to go into fashion, and most of my internships were in fashion. Um, still, I think that's the route that I want to go. Um, but I ended up taking a little like turn working in technology for a while and um, right now I'm working for a startup company that's like an intersection of technology and fashion but um, I'm also like transitioning out of that thinking about how to go into sustainable fashion because um, I think that's where like my passion has like sweaters been. made out of plastic bottles and stuff like that <laughs> kind of yeah seaweed. yeah that like how how clothing is made but also like how we're consuming it Mm -hmm. um, I think. Yeah, isn't uh, the fashion and apparel industry and manufacturing a huge contributor to CO2 yeah. output and yeah. to global warming? Yeah, I think it's the second or third most polluting industry in the world. Yeah. Which is. Um, Plus, we buy so much crap all the time. Yeah, it's. So we just kind of filled our closets or just more stuff. The number one hobby of people in the United States shopping. For sure. And yeah, I think a lot of the conversation is about how we make it, but I think the real question is like, how we're choosing to consume it. Um, and that's like a shift in our culture that is gonna be really uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. I think we have to start thinking about. So yeah, I'm, I'm currently looking to transition into something that's like really aligned with that. Um, and in terms of service, yeah. um, I think what I find the most joy in is working with children and junior youth. Um, I think I definitely have a childish <laughs> personality, so I connect with the younger spirits a lot more. I think that's what I focus on right now. Excellent. Nika? Yeah. Um, my name is Nika. I'm 20 years old. I'm in my third year at university. I'm studying anthropology and minoring in education, and I hope to eventually become a teacher and uh, after a few years of teaching, go into administration. Um, I think my passion actually stemmed from my service. I learned that I love really working with children and um, 
I learned how important education is, material and spiritual education. So I hope to bring that into a school that I'm working with. Um, and now, what, tell me about the anthropology thing, because I, I, love, I love that. What kind of anthropology are you studying um, and getting into? I'm, there's no emphasis where I am, but I'm studying more cultural and social anthropology. Um, I initially went into university as well as pre-med, and I wasn't really 100% into it. So I decided to go with something more neutral. I loved my anthropology class. I took another one, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to major in this. Like, I, I find a passionate, I'm happy, I do well. So I decided to major in anthropology. And I'm now, what is that for people who don't know? It's not dinosaur bones <laughs> in North um, Dakota. No, that that's more paleontology. But <laughs> um, I'm uh, it's the study of human behavior, which is very it ranges with a lot of different topics. So there's archaeology, um, which is like the study of human bones, and then there's also like um, and human remains, and then there's also medical and biological anthropology, which is like the evolution of humans, and then there's cultural and social anthropology, where you learn about why. Uh, people interact and how they interact with each other and how culture develops and there's also linguistic bio uh, anthropology which is the study of languages um, but I really love learning about culture and how culture is developed and what is culture and um, why do people interact the way they do and how our societies have developed the way they do um, so that's what I'm studying um, and my passion in service I think is working with junior youth and youth um, I really love seeing youth go into the institute process. Um, I'm learning a lot about the scheme of coordination at the moment and how it looks to get people through the sequence of courses. And I love seeing the transformation from each book. Um, I've just seen so many inspiring uh, examples of that. And so I really love the institute process for that reason. So, and we're gonna get there and we're gonna get into some of this uh, nitty gritty stuff, but what is the institute process for people listening? There's a lot of like behind jargon catchphrases mm -hmm. that are thrown out. What, what, how, would, how, would, how do you describe that exactly? Oh uh, yeah, the institute process is a series of uh, books, Ruhi books that have been published by um, the Ruhi Institute yeah, in Colombia, where they def uh, talk about different topics. So the first book talks about life after death and what it means to have um, like what a spiritual life is and spiritual qualities are. Um, something that I really enjoy about the Ruhi books isn't that it's just a study, but there's a practical component attached to each of the books. So um, in the first book, we are asked to sh study a prayer with somebody and start a devotional with somebody and what a devotional character looks like. Um, so that's just one example of what a Ruhi book is. Um, but I think these books are really just help develop a moral framework and uh, allow us to do theoretical and practical in our everyday lives. That's fantastic. And I will say that I, I, I was kind of trying to look on my computer right now for the, 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 the phrase, but I remember reading from Shoghi Effendi and he was talking about things that he encouraged young people to study. And one of them was sociology, which is so connected to yeah, anthropology. I mean, they're just kind of sister studies. And mm -hmm. I, I thought that was fascinating. And so many great Baha'i scholars and thinkers, Nader Saidi, um, you know, come from that background, mm -hmm. you know, thinking about these big sweeping patterns of human behavior because that's what the Baha'i Faith is trying to change. You know, it works on a really small level. Like I get up, I say a prayer, I read a quote, I try and be a better person. And it works on this grand level of like changing how humans are with one another in the course of 
human history of mm -hmm. billions of people. So. Yeah, it definitely starts at the grassroots, which I love about this study, is that you learn uh, at the grassroots how people are interacting and how it develops into this grand scheme of things. That's fantastic. Yeah. I have more to say on that later. All right, who do we got left? Nura? Finally. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Nura. I'm 17 years old, and I'm a senior in high school. Um, I'm currently applying to colleges, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping to study political science and environmental science, either becoming a lawyer or working with environmental policy and different um, aspects of that. Um, I'm not as fancy as my sisters. I haven't gone through life as much as them. But <laughs> I, service-wise, I've been really enjoying my children's class right now, and I've been with them for the past two years. And I think I'm at the point right now where I've been seeing the different talents and how they're retaining so much and how they're implementing that in their lives. So that, for me, children's class has been the big focus for my service right now. Great. Okay, so let's imagine that there's a handful of listeners out there, because we do get some people that aren't Baha'is to listen to this podcast. I don't know why exactly, but <laughs> I'll sometimes meet non-Baha'i folk, and they'll be like, oh, I've been listening to your Baha'i podcast. And it's like, <laughs> well, it's great, but um, it really is for Baha'is. But I'm glad that uh, people that aren't Baha'is are listening to it, because I, I think they just kind of want to hear what makes the Baha'i community tick and what makes Baha'is tick, um, unfiltered kind of. Um, but for those people who are listening in uh, that don't know, we, we had a little bit of uh, talk uh, with Nika about the, uh, the institute process, but what are these activities that Baha'is all over the world are involved in? So you guys are involved here in the United States, um, a little bit on the West Coast, some on the East Coast, but these same activities are happening all over the globe. Now, they're different based on where you are. It might be different in the Congo or South Africa as it is in Mongolia, as it is in Calabasas. But generally, what are what are these activities and what are their purpose? So just talk us through that. Yeah. Um, so I can take a stab at it. Okay. Um, I think, you know, very fundamentally. You know, it's like they have those books and the books are like, you know, like Shakespeare for dummies. <laughs> exactly. This is like institute process core <laughs> activities for dummies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, which I probably should read myself, but from what I understand fundamentally, the Baha'i faith is really geared at understanding and working towards the unification of all mankind. This is Vadi talking, this, by the way. Yeah, this is Vadi. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and I think that that is a lofty goal, especially looking at the state of the world. The question is like, that's great. We, you know, we all want world peace. We all want world's unity. We want to eradicate prejudice. We want to fight for the equality of men and women. Um, and I think that the Baha'i community has systematically thought about a way to approach this at a grassroots and community level. And this is, I think, what Nico was hinting at earlier as well. And one of the ways in which we do that are through these core activities um, that help facilitate the community building process. One of them is the study of the Ruhi Institute materials that then um, help individuals become active agents of change. Okay, you just threw out Ruhi Institute. I did. I know most people are going to know what the Ruhi Institute <laughs> materials are, but super quick, what is the 30-second yeah. version of that? So the Ruhi Institute is a series of courses that's been developed, um, and they are geared at different core activities, which are also part of what we're speaking of. So one could be to start devotional gatherings and sharing prayers with individuals in their community. The other could be a teacher of children's classes. Um, another could be an animator of junior youth books. And one could be to facilitate Ruhi courses for other other people. Um, and they, right now, I think we're up to 10. That is um, 
published and available. And these explore a variety of topics. And so the first seven are really thinking about these community building process, the community building work. And so it's the children's classes, junior youth books, and facilitation of Ruhi, Ruhi courses. Um, as well and when as you say, let's go even simpler, when you say community building, yeah. that phrase is tossed around a lot. And by the way, she doesn't have to answer yeah. all this. You guys can <laughs> pipe in if you want. But what does that mean, community building? There's a lot of talk about it, but what does it really mean? Have you seen community being built through this process? Well, I think um, something about this um, these this is Nava. This, this is Nava. This is Nava. Um, <laughs> so, something really special about these courses is that um, it's really available to everyone, and um, it's giving people tools to become protagonists for change in their own community. So there's children who can, you know, study quotes together and sing and play games um, learn about virtues what that means and this like starts shaping their their minds in a certain way like who am I I'm a noble being with these virtues and like how do I show my virtues and then that goes into junior youth groups and um, there's you know four components of the junior youth group there's the study of the book there's service there's art and there's recreation sports and recreation and um, again, thinking about how junior youth who are so misunderstood by the world, oftentimes seen as rebellious or, you know, young younger people who don't quite have an impact on the world, really becoming these like portals of change in their communities, um, learning how to use their voice in a way to help their communities, um, learning about what it means to study and how their studies can contribute to, you know, the betterment of the world. Yeah, I think one thing that I've seen uh, with these activities and community building is that it allows yes, people. Nika. This yeah, is Nika. <laughs> uh, it allows people to actually get to know who's living in their community. So it brings together, like for example, the junior youth groups. Um, there's been a few times where we've gone outreaching, and then like this group will just randomly form in a community, and they're like, "Oh, I go to middle school with this person, but I've never talked to them." And so it's actually allowing them to get to know who they spend their time with, but on a more personal and spiritual and moral uh, foundation which is really really beautiful and I think for us it's also been the way that we've built our own community because I know my junior youth group my children's class Nika's junior youth group and her children's class are the way that we created friend groups in high school and we're able to implement these programs in our schools and do service projects with our friends and engage everyone in the community yeah that's great Go ahead, Vadi. Do you remember where you were? That was a little uh, detour. <laughs> well, I Talked mean, about I community think, building. Yeah. And the Ruhi was there. Was there more about the Ruhi? I mean, yeah. I think that that's kind of they they covered it really well. I think what I really appreciate about this process in the Ruhi Institute is that it takes place at a community level, um, which I think is manageable and more intimate and more connected to one's personal identity. But it's also so, something that's happening across the world in very similar and also unique at the same time fashion. So regardless of where you are, the Ruhi Institute materials are very much the same. The junior youth book materials are very much the same. The virtues that we examine are very much the same. But what's special about the process is that it allows for the specific cultural adaptations to take place. Like it's not replacing 
you know, and he's, it's not enforcing a certain type of music or a certain type of drama mm-hmm. or a certain type of, um, I don't know, way of interacting with one another, but rather exploring these fundamental aspects of human nature that are universal. So like the need and desire to see justice, the like the natural feeling of love that we feel for those around us, a desire to see a better world. And it just says like, okay, this is something that is maybe a truth for many humans. And how do we connect on this truth and then respond to to the specifics of our unique surroundings? I think a good analogy that I always thought of with the Ruhi books especially is that the Ruhi books are kind of like a train and then you have your stop. So like Nika and Vadi and Nava are saying, you take book one and maybe your stop then is to start a devotional group in your community with your friends, your families, your neighbors. And then maybe you do book three and you want to start a children's class or book five and you want to start a junior youth group. But the Ruhi Institute are really like the heartbeat behind all of these core activities that give an individual the tools they need to then implement these programs in their communities. Yeah, I think uh, that's super, that's super helpful. I think one thing this is and this is and by the way, dear listeners, like these are the opinions of the people in this room and people have different thoughts on on. Ruhi and the Institute process and ways that they can be of service in their communities. And, you know, we here in this room don't know a whole lot about what's Mm -hmm. going on in, you know, Tanzania or Nepal. So we're just talking uh, about our experience here in California mostly. But uh, one of the things, and this is just me just throwing in a personal opinion. Uh, One personal opinion I have is that I don't know that, and maybe I'm wrong. Let's have a discussion about this. Sometimes I feel like Baha'is think like, oh, someone shows the vaguest interest in something Baha'i. Oh, Baha'i faith, what's that? Let's get them in the Ruhi book process. <laughs> like just throw them in book. Oh, I'll have a book one. Come over on Tuesday night. And they just hand them a book and the questions and read through and, um, you know, and, and get going. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily the best use of the books and the institute process and I would love to hear your thoughts on this because my feeling is like there's a certain vocabulary that might want to be developed with people before they start to engage with the books and maybe this is just a Southern California thing you know maybe there's other places where people are just so hungry they just want as much information as possible like right off the bat and they just want to dive in Mm -hmm. but my feeling is that can, it can be a little alienating sometimes, and I've kind of seen it happen. It's it's a little bit formal. There's questions. It's book work. It feels like school. Um, but also, like, there's a lot of phrases being bandied around, like the cause of God and <laughs> divine revelation. And there was some other... Oh, we just started a, a book one, my wife and I, and there was, there was some other book... Um, you know, even like Revelation, there was... Is, the Covenant. Yeah, the Covenant. <laughs> these words are kind of thrown out there that people don't know. And, you know, do you think it's a good idea? Here was, here's what, I'm going to put it this way. I think it's a good idea to do some pre-Ruhi work with people, to say some prayers with them maybe, to talk about some basics of the Baha'i faith, to get together and, you know, read some quotes, to practice what is it like to sit in a room. For a lot of people, it's really weird to just sit in a room and like read some quotes that were written hundreds of years ago and discuss what they mean. So there's a lot to get used to that I feel like maybe it's good to like prime the pump a little bit. Just two, three, five, seven kind of meetings. And then and then if there's a continued interest, it's like, oh, here's this actual systematic way of learning 
more and bringing people in more. Am I am I wrong? Feel free to to disagree. Well, I've actually seen it done both ways, and I've seen it work and I've seen it not work. Um, and I think one of these tools that we have to start developing um, in the institute process is, you know, really just getting to know someone's heart and like using our our spiritual perception to understand where they are. This is Nava. Um, this is Nava. Hello. <laughs> um, yeah, like I've I've seen it before where, you know, someone goes a year doing a devotional and they still don't feel ready doing a Ruhi book, which is perfectly fine. Um, you know, there's no intention behind inviting someone to a devotional. And I've also seen it where I remember there was a a random guy that we met who came to our family devotional and we <laughs> showed him a movie about you know the different activi- activities happening around the world and he started actually he went to a camp um like four days four days long four in, days the, in the mountains yeah. and he finished book one and he loved it um and i think it's all about kind of reading someone's heart and understanding where they're at and with that being said like these ruhi books are really just the systematic study of the Word of God. And while it's a formal educational um, process, it doesn't mean that we we can't have other conversations outside of the book. I, I've seen a lot of the times a book one turn into the study of other things, like um, messages from the Universal House of Justice or the study of different books. Um, yeah. I also think that there's this idea that the Ruhi Institute is a way to make people become a Baha'i or something like that. And I think that may happen coincidentally, but that's also not necessarily the intention. Um, I think that's super important. And yeah. There's really underlining. And I think... Because I think it was, in some ways it was like sold like that maybe early on. Maybe yeah. it wasn't, but for some reason the Baha'i world got this kind of vision of like oh it's a Baha'i making machine yeah and that's I think really erroneous and also puts an undue expectation on anyone who decides to engage in the institute process I think really what's what's special and unique is that the Ruhi Institute yes looks at the faith and the writings very intensely we do use jargon maybe that is unique um, and may take some time to adjust to but also the main intention of it is the action component and the service component that follows. Um, and I think that that's also really, really crucial because in, in my experience, sometimes when the book one, for instance, is seen as, oh, here's the Baha'i Faith 101 or like intro to the Baha'i Faith, there's a lot of things that aren't discussed in book one Tons that's crucial that to yeah. the faith. Yeah. And I think that it's really it, one of the things I think about book one that's really special is that it's just at the very beginning um, intending to help people just be able to read the writings in the Word of God. So it uses very basic quotes like the betterment of um, the world can be achieved through pure and goodly deeds, through commendable and seemly action, conduct, conduct, <laughs> through beautiful conduct. And um, it just asks you to like become familiar with the way that the writings are written because I think that there's also a specific tone or a specific way that quotes are and then we see that from the beginning of book one which is a maybe one line quote to the end of book one which is maybe a paragraph um, the participant is like building the capacity to read the writings and then by the time you get to book 10 sometimes it's like two pages long of a quote and so it builds capacity in that individual to, to engage in just becoming familiar and comfortable with the writings. But it's also just such a 
surface level of you know the the amount of writing that is out there and the books that are available and it really just hopefully inspires people to serve and think about their contribution to their their community more than anything mm. there's also such a sense of like vulnerability with ruhi not in the sense of like you're vulnerable but the things you're talking about you you have to have a connection with your group in order to discuss yeah. those things mm-hmm. to the extent you're literally talking about life and death and yeah <laughs> like you, you don't talk about that with a group of strangers you want to have some trust so i think having those initial meetings of just like nava said get to know their heart and get to know the people i think it makes the space much more um, beneficial for everyone and have you seen those involved in these activities change or have you seen the neighborhoods change change come about from this community building process nika oh yeah okay um i think over this summer i got a me and nura had a really unique opportunity where we were able to go to bosch high school for five weeks and do ruhi book one through five um consecutively with about 30 30 youth that came into and out of the sequence and about 12 of them actually or 12 to 15 of them actually did one through five consecutively and so i think that process was one time where we got to see it really in effect where they were doing book one and then moving on to two and three and so forth um and i think seeing their connection with the word of god and their capacity to understand the writings and um do the theory the practical components of the books um, in this short period of time grow so much it was it was really a life-changing experience I think and you're also seeing how their daily interaction with each other changed so much I mean week one you would it was definitely crisis and victory at Bosch you know you'd hear things happen they would do things and you're like oh we still have four more weeks but <laughs> towards the end of it you would see what an impact the books have had on these youth and that translated in how they acted towards each other, how they spoke about the process, how they conducted themselves. And I think now that they've gone back through their neighborhoods, also the um, activities they've had and the progress they've brought to their to their neighborhoods has definitely been impactful. Um, I think there's been plenty of examples, um, just thinking about my own junior youth group or my children's class where I've seen this transformation happen within different individuals. But I think the easiest thing for me to talk about is like that change that I feel came from myself, within myself Mm -hmm. doing the books. Um, I think, you know, it's funny because when we were young, the Ruhi books first came out and nobody really knew what to do with them. So we were like, what, nine, eight years old (laughs) (laughs) sitting in on these book ones. Um, And of course, I didn't have a very deep understanding. Yeah, because I think it's important noting for the listener that this is a fairly recent activity. I mean, they were introduced uh, initially in the late 90s, but right. it was really the early 2000s that they started to be incorporated into the you know, the formation of clusters and cluster work and, and, and whatnot. It wasn't until 2003, five that people were really starting to take them all mm-hmm. over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a new... This is a new chapter in the in the growth of the Baha'i community and the maturity of the Baha'i community. Yeah, and I think, and like b- based off that, like the interactions that we've had with it, like you were mentioning earlier, it was like we do a book and you become a Baha'i, but now it's more like a community building activity, not just to become a Baha'i, but to really serve the. community. So, what's an example of that? Uh, not like people people this being used as a community building activity. That's not they're not becoming Baha'is, but they're building community and using Ruhis as a tool toward that end. Yeah, I think like a very simple example could be, you know, 
perhaps starting with a Baha'i who lives in a, on a street, going around and meeting all of the parents. But do you have a specific example of this that oh, you've seen? Yeah. I think I, maybe one that I can share is that, so my family has lived in the same home since I think the early 90s, late 80s. And most of our neighbors have also lived there for the same amount of time. And it's a pretty consistent um, street. And we didn't really know our neighbors for a very long time. And then I think it first started when we got a dog and we started walking him around the block that we started to meet our neighbors and talk to talk to them. And then we as a family decided that on a weekly basis, we wanted to host a devotional gathering. And so soon those conversations really became an opportunity to invite our neighbors to join us on Sunday mornings for a devotional gathering. And at first some did, some said no for many, many years at times, and then eventually more and more started to say yes and, and joined. And then it extended to the parents of you know our, our school friends and to their families as well. And then that started a pretty natural conversation of like, okay, these are a group of people that we really like coming together. We like to say prayers together. We really like thinking about these more meaningful topics. And then that eventually formed into a children's class that then became a junior youth group after several years. And then some continued with the Ruhi Institute. And then this created a close group of friends that really um, lived in the same city, some on the same block, and we got to know each other at a very close level rather than just being people that, you know, happen to drive on the same street, sometimes pull into their driveways, wave at one another, and then go into their homes and not really talk, but rather we really cared about each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was very different, I think, from when I was growing up and the Ruhi Institute and the Junior Youth Program hadn't developed as much as it had. Um, to when my sisters were growing up, and I got to, we got to know so many different families, build close friendships, really care about each other, think about the community that we wanted to to form, not just happen to coincidentally live in. You know, we kind of I think felt a sense of agency, and felt like oh we can actually contribute something. Um, so I think that that was maybe an example or a glimmering of what community building looks like was just one, getting to know our neighbors, but then two, engaging in meaningful activities with one And you other. hear these stories about youth that are not Baha'is becoming oh, yeah. tutors and animators mm -hmm. yeah. and starting service <laughs> projects and devotional gatherings and, and leading Ruhi books. Have you seen that in action? I think I definitely saw in action. So when I was in sixth grade, I had a junior youth group with Nika as my facilitator, and it was me and my best friend, and I was too scared to invite anyone else. So every Friday, it was just me, my best friend, and Nika. And this went so on for a good six months. I refused to invite anyone until my friend at lunch one day went and invited all my other friends. I did nothing, absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And the next Friday, I saw all my friends from school were at our house. Nika uh, was our facilitator, and that's how I was able to start our junior youth group, just like that. And then it translated to we were able to do Ruhi actually during our lunch at school. We were able to have Ruhi classes there, and I think that was an example of how the the goal was not to have Baha'is be doing activities, but rather it was a means for... You weren't trying to convert. Yeah, we were, that wasn't the goal of what we were trying to do, but rather it was a means for me and my friends to, one, connect on a spiritual level, level one that wasn't based on like frivolous conversations of school, but also as a means for us to serve our community and do service projects around our school's campus and around our city. And then with that, I think something that's really special about Nura's experience also is, you know, she has 
a very diverse group of friends. Yeah. So coming from all different religious backgrounds. And that you can see how it made the conversation so beautiful. And then thinking about Vadi and I's experience in high school versus Nura's experience in high school now, where she has all these friends who are, you know, have been doing junior youth groups and um, are doing Ruhi books during lunch. Like, I mean, I'm sure you can testify to this, but like a lot of the pressures that come with high school, like I feel like you weren't even phased by those things. Yeah, definitely. Um, which is really cool, I think, as well. Well, the House of Justice talks about us reading our reality mm. uh, and then acting accordingly. And why is this so important? Because that sounds like what happened there at Calabasas High School as you <laughs> kind of read the reality. Or even your you didn't, your friend did. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> and um, so how, how, does, how does that apply? I mean, I think living, I think Vadi actually talking about how you formed Nico's Junior Youth Group would help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Nika... Were you guys all each other's facilitators? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, the resources were really limited at the beginning <laughs> of the yeah, process. Bonnie yeah. was Nika's... Nava was my children's class teacher. Nika was my animator. Keep it and, in the family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's also something we've been learning about is, like, how do we encourage more to, to join us and rather than just having us doing it on our own. Um, actually, before I answer that question, I think you asked us a question... Um, of like, you know, you don't have to be a Baha'i to animate or to facilitate. And I think we've experienced that in the junior youth group that we've had um, in, in Rain's community as well, where there are people like one of our co-animators is not a Baha'i, but is very eager and like to serve his community and has found that a junior youth program is one of the ways to do that. And I think that it kind of it's irrelevant what you call yourself, because at the end of the day, we, we may call ourselves Baha'is, and this is maybe a goal or, a, a, I think, an end that we are trying to become closer to, but really, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. We're all living in this world at this time together, and we have a shared vision. And so I think when we see that happening, um, I don't know, I think that it, it becomes very irrelevant if you call yourself a Baha'i or not. But this question of reading your reality, I think, is something that we we started to think about as a family. Um, you know, we, we live in Calabasas. It's a really family-centric city, but also one that is has a lot of different things going on at the same time, whether it's celebrities or grades or, you know, getting into good schools and this kind of pressure of being a really excellent version of yourself all the time. Um, I think that's something that we noticed. And we also noticed that there's a lot of families that wanted to see something better. They wanted to see a community that really nurtured spirituality, that really nurtured um, investigation of truth. And I think Nika's friends you know, I mean, let's just say you're in the center of materialism <laughs> yeah, I was in North say. America. <laughs> I mean, there Calabasas are, yeah. is the Kardashians live in Calabasas. Yeah. It's renowned yeah. as and there are also like phys like those gated communities. There's yeah. physical there's, like, barriers, barriers to getting to know your yeah. neighbors, yeah, you which can't is crazy. Get to know those neighbors. Yeah, yeah, it was really really rough. And I think you know, I I kind of joke that in the in the early '80s or late '80s when my dad moved there, it was a pioneering post, and they were hoping to create a form of an LSA and 
so, you know, my dad at the time, it was not what it is now. It was like a couple of neighborhoods with some homes and one shopping center with like, I think a pavilions or a bond or something <laughs> and a post office. And there wasn't a lot going on. And it was kind of this area where it was like, oh, you're not in LA, you're in the valley, you're far away. It's really hot there. Why would you go? Mm. And um, my dad went and, you know, we've kind of laid our roots later roots there mm -hmm. and um, that's kind of where, where we've stayed and over the past 15 years it's transformed to something that's very different and that also required us to constantly read the reality around us because what was maybe true when I was um, in elementary school may not be the case at all you know with what's going on well, now. So Calabasas is about five miles away from Canoga Park, yep. mm -hmm. which has a very, yeah, yeah. very different reality than Calabasas. Yeah. And that's in the valley. There's been some success with some yeah. youth groups there and uh, some, some work there. So how would you read those two realities differently? So I actually didn't serve specifically in Canoga, but during my time at USC, I started a junior youth group out there. Um, which also has a very different reality from Calabasas. So USC, for those who don't know it, is just outside of downtown LA and it's in some very poor neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think this, this question of culture and reading realities is actually very important um, because as you mentioned, you can go from one street and the troubles that the population may be facing is very different from, you know, just a minute away or two minutes away. Um, and, you know, the Ruhi books and the junior youth books it's not really a means for one person to come into a neighborhood and try and fix the solutions. That's, we're not, you know, trying to like give people the answer to everything, but rather how do I as an individual work as um, a protagonist in my community to identify the things that I am facing and help people around me also solve those problems. Um, I think it's really, really important, and that's why a lot of the times, you know, we have pioneers, um, you know, moving to different areas because they're the ones who will actually understand those those issues or the the problems or even the the really. So you're talking great about things. a different kind of pioneer for those listening oh, yes. in. Can you explain this new trend? Yeah. So um, pioneers are, you know, anyone that moved to a specific area um, with to serve to serve with but intention. it could be someone moving from West Hollywood to Canoga Park yeah. to serve they're now a pioneer yeah you don't have to go to Guatemala or Chile or, or, or even you know there's there's cases in Los Angeles where someone will move just two minutes away um, to start a, a group within a specific complex or something like that mm -hmm. um, which which is really powerful um, because now instead of this idea of some outsider coming in and helping my community it's as members of a community thinking about how to help themselves and like giving everyone to tools because we're we're all on equal plane here like we we don't have the answers i think you know sometimes as baha'is we think we have the answers but we we all have access to the same thing you know um so how do we use these tools together um to to actually make a change and the answer in one area may be very different from the answer in a very different area and that's why you're seeing all these different service projects popping up that are, you know, they're doing different things, but they're all working towards mm -hmm. like the betterment of the world. And reading the reality also refers to the kids in the group who d are deciding their service projects, right? Because mm -hmm. the junior youth uh, mm -hmm. do service projects. So how did the kids in Calabasas and Agora kind of read the reality of their community and what service project did they decide on? Yeah, so I know in the junior youth group that we have in Agora, I've been helping Nava, who's the animator, I've been helping her out. and. 
when the kids when it comes or when the junior youth are talking about what how they want to serve their community the first thought is always oh let's have a food drive oh let's go to an animal shelter but living in a community like agora hills or calabasas those needs are not as visible and they're not as necessary so the junior youth had to think deeper and they had to think what is it that my community needs and what they came up with was the fact that there's a lack of social connection in um, their community. They don't know their friends as well because of technology and social media. So the service project that they implemented and created is called Unplugged, where they have these days or they have these nights where they invite their friends, they invite their families, and they put away their technology, and instead they do sports or they do arts, and they have discussions about how can we use technology to benefit society instead of as a distraction. Yeah, I don't know if you had anything. Can, if I can add one thing, though, it, like, just as a witness to these different, both of these different processes, it also wasn't easy. I think that there were a lot of challenges and a lot of setbacks before we got to that point where, like, inviting family. Yeah, I guess you guys are kind of making it sound yeah, like easy. <laughs> we just bounced around Calabasas and all of a sudden carloads of people were showing yeah, yeah, up and, and friends were inviting <laughs> friends. And so you had not, some struggles along yeah, the way. Yeah, and it was not necessarily like that. Like, I think... You know, I mean, definitely we had, you know, like we were very intentional about inviting our friends and making sure that that was there. But that also came with a lot of rejection or a lot of skepticism of like, no, I I don't want to participate in this or I don't want to do that. And, you know, that's kind of rough, too, because those are also your friends at school. Those are people that you have to see on a day to day basis. And and that was also okay. Like, we kind of learned that that's okay, and that doesn't mean that we're failing. It just meant that, like, no, this person just doesn't want to come. That doesn't mean that you can't be friends with them anymore. And sometimes it would be a case that we would invite someone, you know, a year ago, and then they hear that other people are doing it, and now suddenly they're interested. And, and that was good, too, and that was fine. But it, it took effort. It took a lot of time. It kind of t- it made us, like, kind of step back and say, like, it's okay if you know, rejection happens because that's that's part of this process and it doesn't, that's also not why we do it. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's talk about some of the struggles that you guys have had because I, I want to I keep it, I want to keep it real let's here. Let's talk about the struggles. struggles. <laughs> at at uh, Baha'i Blogcast, let's keep it real. And um, also like, what are some of the struggles that you've had personally, you know, forming devotionals, children's classes, junior youth groups, uh, Ruhi books, um, and what if something? What are something? Each of you, what is something that you've learned through this process, personally, spiritually, through undergoing this process? Nura, do you want to go first? Yeah. So I think one thing is that any time you want to start any activity, the idea of consistency is so crucial to it in the sense that you can't just start a Ruhi book and then meet in a month or in then two months and then three months. And I think for me, something with my own reality, with school, it's hard to balance your Baha'i life with your school life when you have tests every day, when you have different projects. I think for me is learning, um, I've learned what my capacity is and that sometimes it's okay to say no in order to focus on what you want to do. And I think that's been the biggest learning that I've had recently, at least. So can you be more specific? Yeah, I mean, so I... Outside of school, I also do academic decathlon, which takes up a large amount of my time. And 
there's there's obviously you do like javelin throw or do you <laughs> do like uh, it's hurdles or academic decathlon distance or it's like we don't do any put or what, what do you do in that no running no running academic decathlon is a competition I based was kidding on I don't even want to hear about it <laughs> it's you just smart don't. kids jibber jabbering all day long you basically study for a lot of hours after school I'm, I'm normally at school till <laughs> seven every day so oh being at school at seven and then also balancing everything else, it's difficult. So when people have approached me asking me to start a junior youth group or asking me to start a Ruhi book or a devotional, I've had to say no in the sense that I know I won't be able to do it to my best ability. And although that hurt and maybe that hurt your ego as well because you can't do everything, that's the reality. You really can't. Um, it's allowed me to prioritize and understand what I have to do in my capacity and how I can do it well in that sense. And I've been focusing on my children's class, and I help Nava with her junior youth group, and I think that's right now been a really good way for me to serve with my circumstances. So finding a way to serve, even if your circumstances are Yeah, really I, you difficult. shouldn't use it as an excuse, but rather you should use it as a good scheduling technique of how you can fit everything in while still, I don't know, mm -hmm. yeah. Great. What else? What have you personally learned? What personal challenges you've had and, and, and learnings have you, have you undergone? I think for me, when I moved away for university, it was very different because I always had my sisters that we were serving this together. This is Nika. This is Nika. Um, and I think going to a campus where there were a lot of Baha'is, I was really excited because we had devotionals and we had these regular um, activities. But then also with that, with university, like people graduate and they move away. And so um, something that I've realized is that I, f I feel um, a lot of responsibility sometimes. I feel like I should always be doing all of the service things. And I've learned that um, even if I'm the only one putting an effort in something, I shouldn't give up necessarily. Um, I think it is really hard to find a balance between study and service. And sometimes for myself, I think that I, I like really struggle with it, but when resources are low, it doesn't mean that you just give up. You just work with what you have and you keep persevering through it. Well, I think that's I think that's crucial because, you know, I was talking to a Baha'i friend about this the other day, about how many people fall away from the faith when the going gets rough or they have mm -hmm. negative experiences with other Baha'is or they don't show up when they say they're going to show up and they're like, that's it, I'm out, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, which only shows that they don't have a strong enough relationship with Baha'u'llah, because that's what it's all about. And by the way, when I say they, I mean me, because that's exactly what <laughs> happened to me when I got, uh, I've, I've told this story before, but I just think it's so funny. When I, I moved to New York City in the late 80s, and um, I was never, there was no internet. So you, you'd, you'd find out when and where things were by a bulletin, and I couldn't get a bulletin. And I kept writing the assembly, like, could I please get a bulletin sent to me? I don't know when feast is or where it is or where anything is. And I, I never, for the entirety of my stay in New York City, I never got a <laughs> buy bulletin <laughs> sent to me in 13 years. Oh, 13 years? 13 years. I never oh. got a buy bulletin sent to me. But <laughs> when I was sending these letters, I did get appointed to the Youth Committee of New York City. Yeah. Oh. I think they said, oh, this kid's sending in yeah. these letters. He must be active mm -hmm. and care about something. So, But then when I tried to organize... 
I tried to organize a youth group of New York City, which is a crazy idea. You do this giant <laughs> borough and 14 million people, and like oh. you're trying to get people together. And this is before internet or cell phones. So we ran, and then no one showed up. And that was one of the kind of like the the needle that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Is that the phrase? Yep. And uh, the straw? The, I don't know what. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just like, ah, oh, screw this, man. I can't handle this. I can't. I'm so busy with school that I can't. And so I would, unlike you, and you were like, you learned this valuable spiritual lesson, like, I must persevere. <laughs> um, I just was like, see ya. I mean, I don't I'm think that means here. we haven't had those experiences. Yeah. <laughs> like, there have definitely been those times where, like, you've texted people and you just they just stop responding at a certain point. You're like, well, or they it's avoid just me. looking, making eye contact, like, ah, then I have it. And you're like, all right. Well. I think something. I think something that I've learned also, like, at uh, at university is that, like, even if people aren't serving, like, I still want to be friends with them. Like, I want to <laughs> be your friend, and, like, I'm not always coming to talk to you about service. Like, that has also been a really hard thing, is finding this balance between, like, serving with people and, like, developing these friendships, because sometimes it's dichotomized, and I don't think that necessarily it should be. Mm. Um, so, like, just because someone shows this little glimpse of interest of, like, I want to serve, doesn't mean we dump all of these <laughs> responsibilities onto them either, because mm. I think that since our resources are limited sometimes, we tend to do that where we just dump res- like dump all well, its responsibility. I think is- that's a, that's an important point. I was talking to uh, a, another Baha'i friend. I think it was the same Baha'i friend. I was talking mm-hmm. to the same Baha'i friend about like how over-administrated sometimes it feels in the United States mm-hmm. that there's so few people that are truly active in their clusters like going to cluster reflection gatherings and you know holding events and moving things forward and and he was like yeah but it's not that way in Delhi, yeah, you know, yeah. in Delhi, you have all of these people doing the activities. There's very few. It's a very small percentage that are the area teaching coordinate on the committees and auxiliary board members and their assistants and the, you know what I mean? Like that, 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 that becomes like one or two percent of the population. But it's just that in the United States, our numbers are so small that it just feels like. Forty percent of the people involved in activities are on all these different administrative bodies. So we have to kind of remember that. Like, if the numbers come up, then the, the the burden will lighten. The administrative burden will lighten on many people. Well, I think with that, that also kind of speaks to the culture that we're coming from. I think we in America we tend to have a very individualistic way of looking at things, whereas mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, it's not like that. It's very collaborative. And, you know, one of the struggles that I face in serving is also remembering that even if something is easier for you to do and just get it done, you should always have someone there with you because it's a learning opportunity for everyone else. And like being patient with other people as they're walking this path of service. And I think Nura actually, um, when she was speaking of key things that she's learned, like really hit the nail on the head in terms of the word consistency, I think, is a really, really key word. Um, you know, like, I'm sure, Rain, you can speak to the <laughs> years of Friday nights that we've been doing Profound Pizza. Um, it, for those who don't know, <laughs> we've been working Please. for at least eight years, right? Yeah. Maybe more yeah. on uh, junior youth and youth <laughs> groups on Friday nights. And it's changed in various ways. It was called Profound Pizza because it was pizza and it was more arts activities and then it segued into doing the junior youth spiritual empowerment program some of the books and junior youth books and it was at my house and then we moved to a local park because we thought that would be better and uh so there's been and there's been 
high points when there was like 30 people coming regularly and then it's down to like five or six coming down yeah. uh, regularly. So it's it's been all over the place. But I mean, now after all these years, even though the numbers have numbers have diminished quite a bit, um, we have this core, like very dedicated team of youth that are like really delving into the books that are actually excited to study. Um, and I think like th this idea of like serving only when things are easy, like there's always a, a level of sacrifice that has to go into serving. And, you know, w we live in a time where we are all busy, like everyone has so much to do. We're all doing, you know, after school activities. We have, you know, I don't know. Tennis. I don't know if that's I what people I do. I think I tweet. I have tennis. I think <laughs> I, I tweeted about this recently. It's like it's the most boring thing to ask people. Like, hey, how you doing? You see someone. How you doing? So busy. <laughs> I'm so busy. Oh my god, I'm so busy. Yeah. It's like if people wear like a badge of honor. Like I'm so busy. Oh, oh, are you busy? <laughs> oh, you're so busy, really. But Real that's our reality. Like everyone is busy. So. It boils so you have down. Such a, you, have, you have such a more grounded spiritual viewpoint. No, I'm so much more judgmental. It boils down to a question we have to ask ourselves: Like, do I actually want to dedicate time? It's not just in my free time that I serve, but dedicate time to serving. And well, I'll I'll go one step further. Yeah. Do I want to sacrifice? Yeah. My time to serve. Do I want to sacrifice my comfort to serve? Because. The things we're busy with are, you know, things we want to do or bring us income or bring us comfort. Yeah. And we have to sacrifice some of those. That It's a different kind of sacrifice we make in Calabasas in 2020 than, you know, the Dawnbreakers were making in the 1850s yeah. in, in Iran. It's a different kind of sacrifice. Yeah. It might mean giving up some work or giving up some money or giving up a hobby that you like to do or even giving up, God forbid, occasionally some family time. Yeah. And I, one example I wanted to bring up um, is during my time at USC, I had already dedicated, you know, I, I had committed to Profound Pizza, our junior youth group, and um, I lived away from home. And granted, it's not too far away. It was just about an hour, hour and a half away. Drive. Three hours during rush hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like every Friday of my college experience, I would come home. Like I never spent a weekend uh in college and while that seemed like a sacrifice it actually turned out to benefit me so much more how um you know when you go to college there's there's so many you know opportunities that you can have um like you know whatever it is like people want to party on the weekends you know there's frat sorties definitely was never <laughs> a part of any of those but thinking about now like three years since i've graduated thinking about how I spent my weekends, like building these bonds of friendship with these junior youth that I love so much and where they are now. And now that they're like your son too, like now that he's turning 15 and these, this shift in mindset of like, okay, now I want to serve my community. Like I already have identified myself as a junior youth um, animator or children's class teacher. Like it was all worth it. Like, you know, it, sometimes what we think is a sacrifice is actually not even a sacrifice it's helping us more than anything you know that just that just got me thinking about something and i i've i you know i do several podcasts and 
so I forget what I say on which one. So forgive me, dearest listeners, <laughs> if I've talked about this before. But I think just taking a step back in body, I want to hear from you. Um, you know, I've been doing some work around climate change. And the interesting conundrum with climate change is that people feel like, well, how can I make a difference? Mm-hmm. You know, now, granted, there are huge things that need to happen with governments. We need to stop burning coal. You know, there's we need to wean ourselves off of, you know, uh, off of gasoline. And um, there's 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 tons of things that that we can do that we need to do culturally in and in, in governments make the biggest kind of difference in that. But the individual plays a role. But it's so hard. Like you're you're driving like your truck around Los mm-hmm. Angeles and there's a you know, there's 10 million cars on the road at any given time. And you're like, well, what difference is it going to make if I don't drive a truck and drive an electric car instead, you know, or I stop eating beef or, you know, I stop buying so much crap. Like what really that look at all these other people around that are still doing it. But you know what? Unfortunately, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. It's going to take one person saying, you know, I'm not going to drive a truck and I'm going to stop eating beef and I'm going to stop buying so much crap and I'm going (laughs) to lower my carbon footprint. And it might seem like just tiddlywinks, but it's uh, it's uh, it's crucially important because then then it's dozens, and then it's hundreds, and then it's thousands, and tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands. And all of a sudden, a difference is being made. Yeah. But it it's it's a it's a really crucial way of shifting our thinking. But I think that the the community building work that the Baha'is are doing around the world it, it works in the same way. Okay. You're activating these youth to be change agents in their communities and they're like well what difference can i make Mm -hmm. you know i'm just one guy look the world is just the way it is and you're almost like a victim of the way the world is Mm -hmm. what difference is i well you change and then you change with a handful of other youth and then a couple dozen a couple hundred a couple thousand a couple tens of thousands and all of a sudden real change is being made at the grassroots not just at a government level so i don't know why that made me think of that but i think it's i think it's important but what have you Learned. What are your what have your challenges been, and what have you personally learned through doing this uh, community work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a struggle, and there's many challenges. And throughout my life, it's always it kind of feels like I've had to recalibrate. So, when I was in my undergrad studies, it looked you know this balance between school and service looked one way, and I remember I I had the privilege of participating in the ISGP seminars or the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity that are offered, the undergraduate seminars. So, okay, now you just got to give us know, the 45-second version of that. Um, so what is that and yeah, how is that yeah. different? So the undergraduate, ISGP. ISGP, um, one, one of the things that ISGP, which is um, something that happens at the World, you know, this is an office at the World Center, but they offer undergraduate study um, seminars. Um, and there are four consecutive um, seminars that happen over the four years of your undergraduate studies. And so it's like these 10-day seminars. And um, there are opportunities to come. So you're supposed un- to finish freshman year and you do 10 days and then you finish sophomore year and you do 10 yeah, days. Yeah, there's like seminars that happen throughout the U.S. And um, you spend 10 days during these four years of your 
your studies and you you think about um, concepts along the lines of the harmony of science and religion, um, coherence and the importance of service in one's life, um, the culture and communication, um, and a whole multitude of things. And um, it was really pivotal for me because I think for me this is when I really stopped to think about what when I say I want to live a life of service, what does that mean? And I think for me, it made me realize that yes, the community building process is something that I have to be involved in right now. And I have to make sure to dedicate and sacrifice and devote as much time as possible to that. But also it doesn't exclude my studies, my work, Mm -hmm. my relationship with my family. These are all things that constitute a life of service. and that really shifted the way that I, I started to look at things because at, at one point, especially when I first started my undergraduate studies, it felt like, okay, well, if I want to balance school and service, that means that if I dedicate two hours to studying, that means I have to dedicate two hours to service. And that kind of became unsustainable or a little bit, like a, it's like a funny way to think about balance. And then I started to realize that no, if I, if I look at service as the center of my life, everything that I do falls within that. And then it started to help things align a bit better um, because it, it made me think that m- I can achieve more um, than I maybe like than my schedule seems to allow. And so that helped me really think about these things a bit more that, yeah, I, ca- I, I want to excel in my studies and my academics are really important to me. But that also means that I have to make sure that my studies are directed towards you know, the, the, the purpose of this faith and, you know, that I'm contributing to the oneness of mankind, that what I'm studying and what I'm doing f- for my profession does not contradict what I believe. But at the same time that I have to dedicate time to a devotional gathering or a junior youth group or study circle, whatever may be the need at that time. And so I think throughout my life, it's, it's always been thinking about how to balance that. And one of the, the biggest lessons that I learned is that at times I felt like it was too much, that I, I couldn't serve that much or that I had to pull back a little bit and just focus on my school or focus on work or focus on getting into grad school. But actually, usually the times that I pulled back were the times that I did the worst in everything else in my life and I felt a bit lost. Um, and I think time and time again, I've, I've realized that when I devote myself to service and when I make sure that my beliefs, thoughts, actions are aligned with the faith and I'm contributing to the community building efforts around me, I, I think it's like through the confirmations of God and Baha'u'llah that other things tend to fall in line and I do better in my studies. You know, I, I think that I have clarity in thought, clarity in vision, and, and things seem to fall into place a bit more. Um, and it looks different at different points in my life. Like when I moved to Baltimore to study my graduate studies, it looked very different than when I lived in LA and I was working full time. And that was okay. At first it was, it like kind of made me anxious and I was like, oh no, I'm not studying. I mean, I'm not serving. I've like lost my faith or like something like, I don't know, I had a little bit of a crisis. And then I realized I just needed to recalibrate. I needed to really think about what is it that I can take on. You know, I can do a devotional every week. I can participate in a Ruhi Book 8. Um, these are the things that I can do right now. Um, and then maybe, you know, when I graduate and I start working again, it might, it'll might it look different again. And that's okay. I don't need to freak out. I just have to recalibrate and just keep everything focused on service and have a goal and really make sure that everything is coherent. 
Fantastic. So let's um let's wind up a little bit. Um, this has been super uh, inspiring and thought provoking. And but what are uh, each of you personally? What is piquing your interest about the Baha'i faith or Baha'i writings these days? Are there, is there a favorite quote right now that you're thinking about a lot? Is there a Baha'i book you're reading right now, a topic you're studying, or something that uh, you've discovered recently about the faith that's just really piqued your interest? Yeah, so right now I'm reading Advent of Divine Justice by Shoya Fendi, and I think it's, I mean, it's just, there's so much. I think I can read it for the rest of my life over and over again, and there's something new um, to think about. But specifically within that, I've really been thinking about race unity within the United States, and this especially became something that I'm very, very interested in learning more about and thinking more deeply about, um, because I think, since especially since I moved to Baltimore, and the rich history that exists within that that city, and I should also add, like the dark history that also exists um, in in that city. I I think that this is one of the questions that we really have to be asking ourselves, and be really giving a lot of thought to, because it's not something to take lightly. And I also think that as a Baha'i, we believe in the oneness of mankind. We have acknowledged and said over and over again that all prejudice should be eradicated but really like I think especially for someone you know I was born into a Baha'i family and this is like a word and a term that's been used over and over again and sometimes we don't stop to give deep thought to it you know what do we mean when we say the oneness of mankind and what do we understand when we look at the state of the world around us um so I've, I've really been thinking about what does it mean to eradicate prejudice, specifically within the context of race. And then also as a woman, always thinking about the quality of men and women, what does that look like? But um, reading the advent of divine justice has been really helpful. Thinking also the role that the community building process has in facing and addressing and thinking about some of these questions is, is also crucial. Um, Who else? Yeah. Um, I think one quote that I've been recently reflecting on is from the service prayer. I've actually just been, like, I learned a song to it, but I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Please don't yeah. sing it. Don't worry. But I'm going to read As much them. as we love the Asmailiza days. <laughs> if someone else will start singing, then we'll stop. <laughs> Gia's here. Gia could sing it. But uh, maybe Gia could work with you. Could you coach them on their yeah. singing their <laughs> songs? and? Um, their pitch and whatnot. <laughs> no, I tease them because they're incredible servants of Baha'u'llah. And, but, except. <laughs> except their singing does a tremendous disservice. Disservice, yes. <laughs> wow. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, but there's, anyway, service there's, prayer. There's a paragraph that it says, Make me ready in all circumstances, oh Make my Lord. Make me ready in all circumstances. <laughs> Make me circumstances ready. <laughs> You're Something not like that, that? Is, that, is that how it goes? That's how all those no. songs go. <laughs> Hypocrite. <laughs> um, I sing like an angel. What are you talking do you about? Wanna... Go ahead, please. <laughs> so it says, Make me ready in all circumstances, O my Lord, to serve thee and to set myself toward towards the adored sanctuary of thy revelation and of thy beauty. If it be thy pleasure, make me to grow as a tender herb in the meadow of thy grace, that the gentle winds 
of thy will may stir me and bend me into conformity with thy pleasure in such wise that my movements and my stillness may be wholly directed by thee um and for me i think the these upcoming years and these past few years have been very formation formational formational for my life um and my career and so i've just been really reflecting on having um being willing and ready to serve baha'u'llah the house of justice and um our community in any way and like have whole trust in god um in whatever happens in my upcoming years it's it's meant to be by the will of god beautiful Hmm. nora yeah, so I think one thing that um, I've been connecting a lot more to recently were the different letters that were released specifically for youth from the Universal House of Justice. And through that, some of the letters that we've been studying are, one, for example, recently we've been studying the importance of chastity or why Baha'is don't get involved in partisan politics. And I think those letters have really given me a foundation, um, going into college especially, wanting to study political science, of why Baha'is may not be involved in partisan politics or why it's important to have a vision of unity and oneness in different fields. Oh, beautiful. Great. <laughs> Nava. Okay, so um, there's one quote. I won't read all of it um, because it's long, but it's from the tablets of the divine plan revealed by Abdu'l-Baha to the North American Baha'is. Um, I'll just, if it's okay, read the first paragraph that's quite short. It says, O ye believers of God, be not concerned with the smallness of your numbers, neither be oppressed by a multitude of an unbelieving world. Five grains of wheat will be endued with heavenly blessings, whereas a thousand tons of tares will yield no result or effect. One fruitful tree will become conducive to the life of society, whereas a thousand forests of wild trees offer no fruits. The plain is covered with pebbles, but precious stones are rare. One pearl is better than a thousand wildernesses of sand especially this pearl of great price, which is endowed with divine blessing. Ere long, thousands of other pearls will become born from it. When that pearl associates and becomes the intimate of the pebbles, they are also all changed into pearls. And I think this kind of goes to what you were mentioning before. um, And really just finding joy and hope like glimmerings of hope in your service when it may seem like the world is in chaos and you know not everything you can't really see everything working out the way you want to but really having um faith that your actions can bear some fruitful you know um impact on the world um and really yeah i think just really finding joy and happiness in everything that we're doing um that's pretty much it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Esmailiza Days. Yes. Esmailiza Days. It's only taken like 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. It's so thank great. Uh, I have so much love for you guys and your family. Um, and uh, it's just been such a joy. Uh, working with you guys and getting to know you over the years and see you grow up and go to college and move on in your lives. Um, it's uh, it's so beautiful. And I get to share you guys with the listening audience of dozens. Uh, Thank you, Rain Wilson. Yeah. I mean, well, well, and you butcher his last name. Rain Wilson. But I do want to end. 
I do want to end on something. I want to end on a song. Oh, oh God. No. I want you guys to sing a song for this listening audience. One of your beautiful youth inspiring songs. Let's go. What are you going to do? Which you one is it? You just said how bad we are. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to use this against us. You know what? I Let's do it. You Let's know, do it. Yeah. And sure. can I just add a note? Like, I think one of the reasons we, we know that we, we don't always sound good, but I think it's so powerful when everyone just joins together in song. Yeah. And so I think that that's one of the things. It's grassroots, baby. Yeah. You're not professional musicians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're anthropologists and MBAs and who knows what? Um, so which one do you want to do? Maybe this song or the no, 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 no,